Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, locum tenens should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if locum tenens is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear first-hand stories from locums physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics. But now we're actually going to switch it up a little bit. Now, don't get me wrong. We are going to continue to have our episodes as covering classic orthopedic information and orthopedic topics, high-yield things. And we also have our OITE and our board review series. And now we're going to try to add some more things to the podcast and we're going to do a little bit of finance and kind of some business related topic because these are things that we all need to know and that we don't learn as much in residency. Don't get me wrong. We all have some grand rounds dedicated to business and orthopedics and some in finance, but hopefully we can start to cover some of these things here on this podcast and sprinkle it in every now and then. And, And this is going to be our first of our kind of a finance series on the Nailed It Ortho podcast. And so this is going to be relevant information really for all residents, fellows, early attendings, uh, maybe some late ones as well as some medical students. So we'll try to get some uh, general advice to help everybody out. And hopefully all the listeners of this podcast can become well-versed in all different aspects. So we want you to be great orthopedists, great clinicians, and we also want you to be able to have your finances in order or in store and become business savvy as well. So we want you to be well-versed in almost all aspects uh, of life if we can, uh, and we're trying to do that. And so today we're going to kind of do a general broader topic, and then as time goes on, we'll go into more specific topics here and there. And so today what we're going to talk about is kind of just financial planning 101. And who we have to speak with us about it is we have Chad Chubb. So Chad Chubb is a certified financial planner. Uh, He is also a certified student loan professional. He worked with WealthKill LLC in 2015 to simplify and organize the financial lives of physicians across the United States by custom crafting financial plans centered around their goals and values. He has been quoted by Medical Economics the American Medical Association, and CNBC for his work with physicians. He has been a speaker on the White Coat Investor Physicians Wellness and Financial Literacy Conference in 2021, 2022, and 2023. And he has been on Dr. Dale's recommended advisor list since 2016. He was named to the Investment News 2020 Class of 40 Under 40, Financial Advisors Magazine's Top 10 Young Advisors to Watch in the Country for 2021, and Investopedia's Top 100 Independent Advisors in the Country for 2021 and 2022. So he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> and today we're just going to talk about Financial Planning 101. And without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Chad, welcome to the uh, Nailed It Ortho podcast. We are so happy to have you. So welcome to the podcast. Wendell, my friend. Thank you. I appreciate it. Looking forward to uh, chatting through some financial planning today. 
Yeah. And, and we were talking briefly before the podcast started just about, you know, uh, about like residents and medical students and early attendings not having known much about finance. I feel like this will be a good episode to give everybody a good basis of these are the things that you need to at least start thinking about when you look at the financial side of things. So I'm really glad that we uh, that we have you here and, and you can help us out. Yeah, yeah, you uh, you know, it's crazy how much schooling you all go through, but yet they somehow seem to miss the entire chapter on uh, Finance 101. So uh, we'll cover the uh, the foundation here. Fortunately, uh, we're very used to working with younger physicians, whether that's in training or early attending or even later attending years. So the good news is we have some miles here, so we should be able to provide some uh, good tidbits and tips uh, for the audience today. Awesome. Well, I guess to start off, you know, just getting a little background on you, what kind of got you into this whole finance sector, you know, working with physicians or the medical community? Yeah, so physicians did not come in. So I started my firm back in 2011, so pretty much right out of Penn State. And I knew I wanted to do something a little bit different. So I always knew personal finance. I always knew financial planning. Uh, traditional financial plan, you think, hey, you know, you're working with older retirees. You don't really care what field they came from, right? They have money. They have a pulse. Like, okay, we can work with that. Right. Uh, for me, that wasn't ideal. Uh, I like working with with my generation or near my generation. I always say usually it's it's mostly because we can relate on things outside of finance, right? Um, I often make the joke like my mom thinks that Twitter is truly a little bluebird outside, where you know we all know it's a little bit different, right? So right. just being able to relate on different things and being in a similar life cycle, you know, accumulation years of our careers, uh, family planning, buying our first homes. Uh, just all those parts were always exciting. So I, I knew that part. I knew the generational part. And, and you know, we labeled today as Gen X, Gen Y. Um, the part I didn't know was physicians. Uh, once we got to Philadelphia, uh, we if you're familiar with Philadelphia, we rent our first home in the Italian market. And it just happened that literally, like out of our six neighbors, I think five of them were physicians. Uh, <laughs> and I always blame it on, on too much wine in the back alleyway on yeah. a Friday or Saturday night. But um you have a few glasses of red wine and you start to vent and you say, Hey, my income's going from two fifty or from fifth uh, from fifty thousand to two hundred and fifty thousand. My student loans are at five hundred thousand. I want to start a family, I want to buy a home. What the heck do I do? Mm-hmm. And you know, conventional wisdom was there wasn't advisors doing comprehensive financial planning. Now, you know, plug in a large insurance brokerage firm and they're happy to sell you disability, uh, which we're okay with the disability part, uh, but they also are probably sneaking in some form of you know, permanent life insurance that we were not the biggest fans of. Um, so physicians kind of um, smacked us in the face, per se, when we got to Philly, and and you all became our people. Um, and a few of those individuals were chief residents. They invited us over to, to Jefferson to speak. Uh, and it was stuff that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. How do we budget? Uh, student loans are extremely complicated. What the heck is public service loan forgiveness? What if I don't want to go for public service loan forgiveness? You know, what do we do with this alphabet soup? So it really evolved. Uh, we got to Philly around 2015, and um, you know, as as fate had it, he put us around uh, a lot of physicians, and we found out that you all were our people. Uh, and here we are, you know, coming up on on 10 years later, uh, and specifically only working with physicians uh, to this day now. Uh, so that's how we we started working with physicians. So uh, give a little bit of love to the city of brotherly love. Get a little bit of a shout <laughs> out to, to Red Wine uh, and good neighbors. But uh, you know, here we are today. Yeah, you know, I've only been there one time for a residency interview, actually. So I, I need to go back again and, and visit. Uh, I've heard, you know, I've heard a lot, numerous stories about the city. Um, great story. And, and that being said, it's only work with physicians. 
What are some, I guess, some of the biggest mistakes that you see doctors make when it comes to financial planning, whether it be a resident, fellow, whatever it may be? But what are some of the mistakes you you see over and over? Yeah, yeah. I think to keep it simple, um, I think failure to plan is probably the biggest failure, right? It's it's as physicians, you're so much in the grind of training to become a great physician, and you have this longer runway that before you know it, you know you're in your mid to late thirties and, oh my goodness, I still have to save, you know, I want to start a family, got to buy a house, can finally actually lay down some roots somewhere because I'm not moving, you know, to different cities. So I think that failure to plan is probably the number one mishap um, or the mishap of the idea of I make good money, I'm saving something, I'm probably on a good track, right? Almost like the assumption is probably the the number one um, issue that we see and it can get very detailed into, you know, even in training, like while you're in training, uh, you know, I know Larry uh, is going to have a great episode on disability insurance, like while you're in training, getting a good plan in place, it's probably the only time you might have access to something called a guaranteed standard issue policy, where you don't really have to overthink it for our female physicians, they can still lock in hopefully a unisex rate, you know, for our male physicians that maybe don't have um, great health, they don't have to worry about the health questions. But like, as soon as you're done with your training, that thing's gone. Um, so if that issue would pop up, or again, even for our female physicians, just the cost savings, it's locked in forever. Like that's an easy one in training. You know, if your program offered a match, I know not every program offers a match, you know, don't be scared to start saving. You don't have to set any world records, right? No one's saying, you know, put your entire salary into the 403B, but at the same time, if you're getting some free money on a match, try to take advantage of that. You know, don't neglect the emergency fund. Um, and probably the number one topic, right, is just student loans and having an idea of what you're going to do with your student loans. Um, I usually say in a perfect world, you have it down to two routes. You're either going for public service loan forgiveness or you're going for aggressive payoff. I know that's sometimes easier said than done because, you know, you might start to interview and while you assume that you were going to work, you know, for an academic um, hospital, maybe the private practice just gave you something you you couldn't resist, right? It was perfect or working with someone that you really wanted to work with. You had a good partnership route, whatever the case would be. And what we thought we were going for completely changes. But the sooner at least you have an idea. Uh, now, obviously, when we're in a pause, it makes it a little bit easier. But the sooner you know, um, I think that would be another one. So again, failure to plan. But when you start to kind of peel back that onion, it can go a lot of different ways on what that would mean. Because what I would tell a medical student compared to what I would tell a second year attending, while it doesn't seem like a huge gap in between those, it's completely different phases of life on, you know, what does asset protection look like? What does risk management look like? What does investing look like? Where are student loans at this point, right? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts uh, and it's such a simple question, Wendell, but it, it's certainly loaded <laughs> as well. And the idea of like, give me like a persona and we could probably make up a completely different story for each physician, whether it's, you know, medical student, you know, intern year, versus, you know, the, the, the two to three year attending or even later in their attending career. Yeah, and, and you test on a lot of different points, hopefully some of those which we'll talk about today. Yeah. And maybe we can do, we can kind of go big picture and we can talk about the aspects that doctors should make a plan for. And and do you, t- just, just like the broad aspects of it, do you typically have a sheet or like an exercise that you that you do with you know any of your clients that you say okay these are the different aspects of finance that we need to talk about or this is how you need to think about it and then you kind of dive deeply into each of those different sectors. Yeah, so um, 
financial planning, again, content from, from a content perspective, you think, oh, it's a financial plan. It, it, it should be relatively straightforward. Uh, to add context to that, our plan builds take us usually at least two months. So by the time we collect all the data from our physicians, we analyze that, we then kind of make it digestible and then add our, our areas to optimize or our suggestions. You know, it's usually a two-month process. Uh, main areas that we focus on, we, we, we call the one section financial wellness, which that is going to be, you know, hey, what's your student loan game plan? Um, if you do this route, what does it look like? If you do this route, what does it look like? You know, hey, we want to buy a home. Is a million dollars a crazy number? Is it not? You know, Southern California versus rural Iowa, you're going to get a lot different home for a million dollars. So kind of walking through the real life side of finance, right? I always say that our financial wellness section is what you're used to dealing with on a, on a day-to-day basis. It's your cash flow. It's your, your um, emergency fund. It's your debt ratios. You know, how does that all look? So financial wellness, a big part of our plans. Obviously, I think the number one topic that most people assume you hire a financial planner for is the, the investment side of things. So, you know, we walk through what current investment options do you have? You know, what does the hospital 403B look like? Do you have a 4B7B plan? You know, is it a government plan? Is it a non-government plan? Do have we started a Roth IRA? You know, if you're in attending status, it's likely not just a regular Roth IRA. We probably have to add the extra step in there to start to do the backdoor Roth IRA. So that's what's going to be really built in that investment section. And you know, eventually you kind of fill up, fill up the 403B bucket, you fill up your backdoor Roth IRA. Now what? Uh, so you start to get into that taxable investment account and you know, kind of build on that. So that's another section of it, risk management. Um, we actually, you know, Larry Keller is our main insurance guy. We don't, we don't sell anything. So anytime we do need a quote for term life insurance or disability, Larry's our guy. So Larry helps us on the um, risk management side, umbrella insurance, simple little asset protection tool for physicians, pretty low cost, you know, getting an umbrella policy added. So we have all that really built up in the, um, the risk management section. And then we'll also get into longer term planning. You know, I don't, I feel like our generations are probably going to change the wording. I don't think we're going to fall in love with the word retirement. I think our parents love mm. the word retirement. I think right. we're probably going to be more of like the financial independence uh, group. Yeah. And, and I think that can mean a lot of different things. You know, maybe that's truly stopping work at 60. Maybe it's you go part-time, you know, from 50 to 60. You know, I usually use the example like per specialty that can change. Like our emergency medicine docs likely don't want to go at that pace at that grind, you know, into their 60s where maybe our psychiatrist or our dermatologist are like, listen, I got a pretty good work-life balance here. Like, I think I can run with this, um, you know, plug in our surgeons, plug in how much call time you have, right? Like that right. could all have a dramatic effect on how long is my runway? You know, you all know better than I do. Burnout is a real thing. You know, we really try to address that with our clients, um, build in travel budgets and say like, hey, you got to take breaks because if you can't do this long-term, you know, your financial plan is dramatically different. Um, and we'll get into, you know, estate planning, where at this phase of the game, again, we work with Gen X, Gen Y physicians. So most of our physicians are not above the age of 45. You know, we're, we're looking for wills and living wills and powers of attorney. And depending on what state you have, maybe you have a living trust in there. Um, you know, are you working with a CPA? If not, why not? You know, I think a lot of, a lot of physicians assume like, oh, well, why would I work with an accountant? I plug my numbers into TurboTax and it was the same thing. Say they're not going to commit tax fraud for you. The goal is to delegate it to them, you know, let them work through it, give you more time back, right? How much are you, you paid per hour in your profession? Like you're probably going to do better outsourcing some of these things. So tax right. planning is a big part of it, estate planning. 
Um, physicians love asset protection. So wherever we can add an asset protection thing, whether it's as simple as, you know, hey, add an umbrella policy to make sure you put a lot of time and energy into your marriage because the number one way for physicians to lose half their assets is through a divorce. Yes, yeah, yeah, I read that. <laughs> yeah, everyone thinks it's going to be this crazy medical malpractice. And I'm like, are you going on date nights? Are you, right. you know, are you paying the babysitter? Make sure the babysitter is a budget line item. So just those little things, you know, um, like I said, Wendell, our, our plan builds take a while. So we really get into those details, but there's not many topics we don't cover with our physicians. And, you know, even yeah. things like contract negotiations, like I'm not an attorney, you don't want me negotiating your contract, but we have good individuals, you know, on hand that are contract attorneys and they can work with our clients and, you know, insurance, we bring in Larry, we have mortgage brokers who actually can do mm -hmm. true physician mortgages and, 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 you know, walk our clients through that process. So, um, True comprehensive financial planning window can cover a, a lot of topics, um, but that's kind of at least a good overview of what we're looking to tackle, at least when we start the conversation. And one of the questions that I have is, you know, we start off or say, for example, we're in residency, we get emails from multiple people saying, you know, inviting you out for dinner to talk about finance and they have their names. And then after their names, there's a bunch of different letters, CFA, CP, you know, it's, I have, we, all, we have no idea what any of the letters mean. And so I guess I have a two part question is one. Um, should you get a financial person? And then two, I guess, what are the credentials that you're looking for in a financial planner? Like how, you know, what level of like, who, who do you want to manage your, you know, kind of help you figure this stuff out? Fantastic question. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I kind of throw shade at our industry. Um, our industry has a long way to go. It's getting better, but has a long way to go. Uh, there's still a lot of bad financial advisors disguised as, as, as salespeople um, where, you know, they're just coming in to sell a product. I usually will say when we're on a call, you know, always at least look for a CFP. A CFP stands for a certified financial planner. That individual is looking for comprehensive financial planning, or at least they should be. Um, CFA is another good designation. Usually they're going to be more heavy on the investment side. Like I would say, like when we build portfolios for our, for our clients, we're making sure like there's CFAs on that team. Okay. CFAs. Chartered financial, chartered okay. financial analyst. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you could, you could have a CPA, your accountant um, where they might do more financial planning, but I think you, usually you want to at least see the letters CFP because um, it goes to show you that they put a little bit more time and energy into the financial planning side of things, which for our side of it, that's the most important part, but maybe you're going to bring in a CPA for your taxes. Maybe you're going to bring in a CFA to help on the investment side, or maybe, you know, they're the ones actually building the portfolios. But I'd say, you know, the CFP for the way that we look at financial planning is probably the most important one. But I'll always put the disclosure. That does not mean that you're guaranteed to have a good outcome, right? You can have, you can find a CFP that still sells you some type of permanent life insurance policy, right? It doesn't mean that they're a good person. Um, right. doesn't mean that they're a bad person, but it's just one of those ones where our industry is different than the, the, the medical field. Like you, you want to do some research. I mean, you can go to FINRA and type in advisors names and see if they have disclosures. Um, you know, it's, we, every now and then we don't get a ton anymore because I think we've built up our presence pretty well, but you know, we would have physicians that would say, Hey, can I talk to two or three other physicians? Like, let me talk to someone to make sure like you're a good person and you know, you, you, you've done this with them for a few years. So I think asking for that, you know, always asking, you know, what are your fees? You you should always know what you're paying. Um, and whenever someone says, oh, don't worry, we're paid by, 
you know, the insurance company, like that's probably your first yellow flag. I could probably argue that's a red flag. Okay. Um, yeah. What so are some more red flags? <laughs> yeah. See, yeah. I, you always want to be able to explain, you know, how are you, how are you paying? Like, again, we use a flat fee, which I think is easy uh, to understand and explain. But at the same time, like I, I always make cases too, like it's still not a conflict free model. Like what if you're paying us a flat fee, but in that year, like you just like, let's say we, we fell asleep, right? We didn't, we didn't check in with you at all. We didn't do any review meetings. You also didn't ping us. You could pay us a pretty substantial flat fee and there's no work being done. Now, again, uh, hopefully that's not the case, but it's good. My goal is to show you like every fee model will have a conflict. You know, if they charge assets under management, usually that's a little bit harder in the earlier years of a, of a position because there's probably just not enough assets yet to bill on. But that's okay if they use that model. Just understand, right? If they use a 1% fee, you have $500,000 invested. Okay, you pay them around $5,000 per year. So just always knowing that, um, you know, asking, you know, if, if they're a part of, you know, do they sell any products? You know, are they a true fee-only firm? Or are they a fee-based firm? Which means that they do a lot of fee-only work, but they might still get a commission because they might want to still sell disability insurance. Nothing wrong with that. Just make sure you know that. Um, you should always know how you're getting paid um, or how, how you're paying that advisor. So I'd say that's a big one there. Um, okay. Not not to say it's the, the one place to find an advisor. And, and obviously there's a little bit of a conflict there because we're on the on this list, but you know, utilizing the white coat investors financial advisor list. Like there's some research that has been done there. Dr. Dolly will, you know, ask questions and make sure that they're not selling products, but at least you have an idea where to start. Um, the adage has always been like, you want to find your financial advisor. You don't want your financial advisor to find you. Mm. Um, and I think that's a pretty good way to think through it where you take the time, right? You do your research, you do your due diligence to find out, okay, that firm looks right for me. If they invited you to the steak dinner, I would throw up some red flags there. Or as we always tell our <laughs> residents and fellows, go get the free meal. You're in, right. Go get that free food. Um, but maybe just don't sign up for anything. Just kind of leave there. Uh, maybe write in a fake email address or a fake phone number, <laughs> uh, get your right. steak dinner and move on. Yeah. And, and you know, because we'll joke around each other and say, you know, like, or it's being said that, you know, as of right now, earlier on, you know, your financial, whoever it is, the person that got you with your disability or whatever it may be when you're an intern, they don't want anything now, but they're hoping to secure something. So down the line, when you're an attending making money, I guess you kind of go back to them and then maybe it may be on a, you know, a fee based or asset based where they take a percentage out of whatever else it may be. And, and, and really quick, you said one of the websites, you said FINRA is where you can go and at least look for the disclosures uh, on different people. Is that right? Yeah. Like if you Google search FINRA, F-I-N-R-A broker check, It'll pull up a box. You can type in their name. You can type in their firm name. You can type in where they are. You only need to add in one of those credentials. But like if you went to FINRA Broker Check and type in Chad Chubb, you'll actually see our information pop up. You'll see that there's no disclosures. You can see you know anything listed in there. And by disclosures, it just means like, hey, did that advisor ever mess up? And you know it led to some form of a conversation. Doesn't mean that they did something like completely illegal where they you know should be barred from the industry for, forever. But you know, it could have been something small, but a client complained about it and it shows up on that. So just those little things, um, it's, it's your due diligence. It, you know, I was always, when we host our prospect calls, um, our icebreaker calls, we always tell them like, take your time, don't rush. Because if you do it right and you take time to at least do your research one time, you likely never have to do it again. 
Like once you find an advisor, whether that's, a, whether that's one advisor you work with for the next four decades in a row, or it's an advisor you kind of come to every few years for a one-time plan update or just an hourly engagement, you likely found someone that you trusted. You're going to build a personal relationship with them. But you know, take the time to do that right because there is nothing worse than, remember, it takes us two months, right? Let's just say that you work with us for two months. We present the plan and for whatever reason, you're like, I don't, I don't really like that firm. You put in a pretty good commitment just to get us all those documents and explain, you know, you know, this is my family setup. I want to retire here. I want to do here. You know, here's my health issues. Here's what I did here. Like that's a, that's a big personal commitment. So right. to do that more than once when a physician barely has enough time as it is outside of the world of medicine and their, their family, it, it's, you know, it's, it can be almost like morally devastating, right? You don't want to have to do that too many times. And that's just assuming like you came to someone for a plan, not, you know, say, let's just say you got into a bad investment or something like that. And then it becomes a much larger issue. So take your time on it, kick the tires, interview more than one advisor, you know, even on our prospect calls, you would think we're just like, great work with us. But we will usually say like, Hey, you know, interview another advisor or two, because mm-hmm. we could all like, if you have three great advisors and we can all provide the same value and we all have CFPs and we're very, you know, well-versed in working physicians there at that point, then it really comes down to more of a personal fit. Like maybe right. you don't like how much I use my hands. Maybe you don't like, you know, <laughs> all my kids on my, my wall behind me, um, whatever the reason would be, then it becomes more of that personal connection. So, you know, I think the biggest thing with that is just take your time. Don't rush into it, you know, find a good match, you know, maybe even talk to some friends, maybe family. Um, but again, you find the advisor, don't let them find you. And one last question that I did have, yeah. uh, I guess kind of on this topic before we kind of go over and, and touch base on some of these different broader topics is what is a decent price, I guess, range for a financial advisor? Uh, you mentioned assets a little, a little bit later on, maybe 1% of that. Yeah, I've heard that a couple of different times from some people, but for, you know, kind of these fee-based, what is a reasonable priced range for this service? Fantastic question. And if you have 10 advisors in a room, we could probably all argue about this uh, for a long time. Um, I'll use my fees. So we use essentially, if you're doing an ongoing engagement, our, our minimum fee is $6,000 per year. Um, if you come to us for a one-time plan, we charge $5,000. I always describe it as this, because this is how I think. We're not the lowest priced. I know we're not the highest price. We're right there in the middle. And the reason why that's always been important to me is I call it my Costco rule. My wife yells at me because I walk into Costco, but I won't look at the prices of anything. Because I know that I'm not buying the most expensive thing. I'm not paying the lowest but I'm getting something in the middle and it's good quality. So that's why we use our pricing structure. You will find advisors that charge less than that. Not saying that they do anything different than we do. They could, heck, they could be better than we are. And then you could have others that are charging twice as much and maybe they provide twice as much value, but maybe they don't. So for me, I usually say around that range. Um, you know, I think if you even went to the White Coat Investors page and you clicked on the top 10 advisors there and you clicked through their fee structures, some of them, we use a flat fee. So it's so easy to describe our fee, but others could be a little bit more complicated. It could be an AUM fee. It could be an AUM fee after you hit you know, $500,000. But up until that $500,000, you, know, you pay at least $5,000 in planning fees. So again, our industry isn't as simple as like, hey, everyone has to use this price structure and show it. But um, to me, I think that range, you know, around five to $6,000, you know, at least at a starting point, which for us, that assumes your household income is below five hundred thousand. Your net worth is below five hundred thousand. You know, as it goes up, we'll kind of add a hundred there or a hundred there. 
Um, we list ours on our website. We, I'm a big fan of the office. So I use all the office families um, to show some examples, but I think that's a fair range, but you could easily make a case for lower or higher. And I wouldn't have much to rebuttal that with. That's just what we believe is a fair value for what we provide to our clients. Mm. Okay. So definitely different type of models for pay. Um, but you kind of, you just need to kind of do your research and see what's provided and, you know, kind of go from there, but no, that, that's great. At least to have a general idea of around how much these services cost. I know some of us are like, eh, maybe like three, $400. Then you're like, okay, it's probably not that cheap. It might be a little bit more. It kind of depends on what you get. Yeah. Um, and to even add on that window, I always say too, like, usually our model is built for someone that is later in training. And when I say later, they're probably like at the point where they're looking for their attending contract. When we get individuals that are like in their intern year or even medical school, very often than not, all of those say, hey, listen, don't overcomplicate this. You need good disability insurance. You need a student loan game plan. So call Larry Keller or any of the other good insurance brokers out there. Get a good disability policy in place. Your student loans seem to be a little bit of a mess right now. So go get a one-time consultation from the White Coat Investors Student Loan Company or even the company called the Student Loan Planner uh, run by Travis Hornsby. Um, Sometimes early in your career, it's not, we'll tell you, like, you're not going to get $5,000 of value from us. Do this, do this, do this. Don't do anything silly in the meantime. Circle back when you're attending and we'll be there for you. But if yeah. you can hit these three points, you're going to come to us in good shape and we'll be there for you. So I think also knowing like where your demographic is, where if I only work with, you know, medical students and intern, I know that my price structure would not work. It, it's way too expensive. Um, where sometimes, you know, maybe there's, attendings that are further in their career, um, you know, they usually will circle back because they did the math, right? Well, I had $3 million invested. I charged, they charged me 1%. I'm paying them $30,000 for, you know, one review meeting per year. Well, you know, Chad's firm is dramatically lower than that. And there's at least two reviews. So that's where the pricing is so complicated because depends on where you are in your career, depends what services you're offering, depends kind of where you're coming from too. Like maybe it is much lower, maybe it is much higher. So I think there's just, there's a lot of, a lot of gray area there, but I think by doing some research again, making sure that you understand how, and like I said, one of my earlier questions, like just understand what you're paying and what you're getting. And then from there, you have the tools at your disposal to make a good decision. Yeah. So, so you gave us some good tips on, you know, what the credentials mean, how to find a good person, how to kind of vet different, you know, vet different people, some mistakes that, uh, that you've seen doctors make and kind of the, We've, we've touched broadly on some of the different aspects. We talked about the disability insurance. And for those that are listening, it's like you mentioned a couple of times, we have a great episode with Larry on disability insurance that he goes into detail, but definitely some of the things that you said about kind of getting that GSI, uh, those plans, definitely while you're in residency, you definitely want to do that. But so I kind of want to touch based on some of the different topics and we can kind of briefly discuss what they are because a lot of people just don't even have any idea what these things mean um, but we could just start with something a little bit more general what i guess just budgeting tips that do you have for for doctors maybe some quick hits on things that they can easily do yeah budgeting gets this bad rap i, I call it, it's like a swear word um and that's whether you're a physician or just you know anyone budgeting just kind of it, it, it feels like a swear word um, but budgeting doesn't have to be painful. You know, maybe maybe you enjoy budgeting, right? Maybe you can sit down on a monthly basis. You know, we have some clients that do literally monthly date nights together where it's just a financial conversation. Uh, we don't have many of them, but I, I will say, um, I always thought that was such a neat thing. I love that. Um, but budgeting is just more or less, you know, what's coming in, 
what's going out. Ideally, at the end of every month, there's some type of surplus. While you're in training, I would say residents and fellows are paid a fair wage in general terms, not for the amount of hours that they work. So it's one of those <laughs> right. where like you have good income coming in. There's enough to think about and, and move parts. You're dramatically underpaid if you take your hourly rate in there. But from at least, you know, a numbers perspective on like in general, like what's a fair income in the United States, um, you have money to work with. So keep an eye on that money coming in, money going out. You know, I think that's part one of budgeting and you can keep it simple. You want to go old school on them, do pen and paper. You know, if you want to build an Excel spreadsheet, two very popular softwares that our clients love. Um, Tiller is one of them. So T-I-L-L-E-R. I believe their website is actually tillerhq.com. I like Tiller because it's more of your conventional budget and you can link your, your bank accounts, you can link your credit cards and it's more automated, right? Uh, the other one that clients really like is YNAB, which stands for you need a budget. I like YNAB. Um, I don't like it more than I like Tiller. YNAB is one of those ones where they're trying to get you to think in months in advance. So like you have $30,000 in the bank. Okay, you just prepaid four months of expenses. To me, that's never how I thought about budgeting, but clients that do use that, they love it. They're like, no, it makes complete sense. You're just a goof jack. You don't get it. Um, but whatever you would want to use there, that can make it a little bit easier. Um, and sometimes it's just as simple as like sitting down there and looking at you know the credit card statement and, you know, hey, I got X put away. So don't overcomplicate it. Don't think you have to do it weekly. Don't do, you may not have to do it monthly. Maybe you do it quarterly. Maybe you do it semi-annual. I would like a little bit more than annual, but, you know, I think just budgeting in some format, try to make it fun. Don't make it painful. Maybe use software to automate it a little bit so that once once you build it once, you know, you really just kind of have to keep an eye on maybe readdress and recategorize some, some, some things, but the technology will do the rest for you. So um, my biggest takeaway there, Wendell, is, just make sure you're budgeting in, in some shape or form. Yeah, yeah, Chad, I, I like those. The tillerhq.com and the Wine app. Those are things I'll, I'll probably check out. But those are two, at least two resources that you just mentioned that people can go and use if they want to. Yep. Now, you mentioned student loans a little bit earlier, and I kind of like what you said. You either kind of doing the, the loan forgiveness program and you're just aggressively <laughs> paying off your loans. I think I'm probably going to be on the ladder just aggressively because I didn't plan. Uh, I didn't plan early enough, <laughs> contrary to our talk here. Um, but I guess any other just overall tips on, on, on how you view, you know, student, student loans for docs as far as planning. Yeah. I mean, the day that we're recording this, just to add some context to it, the Supreme court, literally as we're recording this is currently hearing talks on student loans. What world do we live in? You know, to show like how complicated student loans have become. The Supreme court is literally hearing conversations right now on why forgiveness makes sense, why the polls make sense, why it doesn't make sense. So it just goes to show you like how complicated student loans have become. Um, I think my initial note is a good guideline. The sooner you know that, the better. But it's it's never that easy, right? It's never just oh, I'm going this route or that route. And, and even there, when you think you have it all figured out, we've had we've had physicians that were eight years into PSLF, only did two more years, got the perfect offer for a private practice, literally left, and we had to repay all that and work it backwards. And remember, when you're going through a lot of these income-driven payment plans, you likely are having interest accrue uh, because you're trying to really slow play it so that you get a larger forgiveness. And you go for PSLF, and we're not really worried about the amount of forgiveness because it's a completely tax-free event, right? So the sooner you know that, the better. Um, student loans are going to change dramatically based on what happens today. Um, once we get context on that, you know, we'll probably find out the next chapter. When do loans restart? You know, literally in uh, you know March of 2023. So um, coming up very sooner, depending on when this posted, it just passed, right? 
we will be at three years of no student loan payments. For most physicians early in their career, that pertains to you, right? You likely did not have a payment for three years, and now they're going to restart. Uh, there could be a very, uh, I don't want to say a new payment plan because they're going to update, revamp the repay program. Based on the current descriptions, the new rape repay program looks really appealing, where maybe interest won't accrue. We can finally do married filing separately with the repay program. Um, and I realize some of this might sound like technical jargon. Um, I joke with Wendell before we got on here, like we could literally talk for hours on student loans. <laughs> so I'm just yeah. trying to add some context on things to maybe keep an eye on. You know, do they restart in June? You know, do they, with the first payments and starting in August? If the Supreme Court takes their time on a ruling or if they don't come to a conclusion, could that go further? It certainly could. Um, but make sure you do your research on it. Um, I noted these two resources earlier too, but you know, if you don't need comprehensive financial planning, there's also very good student loan resources out there. Uh, again, the White Coat Investor has his own student loan wing now. Um, Travis Hornsby founded the firm called The Student Loan Planner. And these are companies that you can go to, pay a couple hundred bucks, and they'll analyze your entire student loan setup, but kind of walk you through some, hey, update to this plan because it's going to do this or change this, or hey, everything looks good. But I think that's a good investment too, where it, most CFPs like myself, and, and really most of them on, on the white code investor list, are likely going to in include detailed student loan planning. But if not, or if you don't just don't work with a financial planner yet, you know, I think putting some time and effort into those if you're a little bit confused about your loans or if you're worried you're not optimizing them properly. But I think a lot of those packages are like, you know, maybe 300, 400, $500. So not a small commitment, but also not, you know, where you're you know, shelling out thousands of dollars just for a student loan analysis. Right. And, and Chad, another part to it that we always, you know, hear about are these kind of these different retirement plannings. And we hear about Roth IRA, IRA, 401, 402, all, you know, all these different numbers and letters that have no idea what any of it means. Can you kind of, I guess, just give us an overview of some of the options and then maybe quickly like what these accounts are? I know you mentioned some a little bit earlier, but just, you know, because a lot of us have no idea what anything is. So just pretend I have no idea what anything is we're just giving kind of a quick overview like okay this is this this is that etc yeah so i think at the very front of the line it's always going to be what your employer offers so i'm just going to assume mostly academic medicine here but even yeah. there the 403b and the 401k are pretty much you can kind of change those out they, they're pretty much the same it's just more or less where can you find one so usually in academic medicine you're going to see a 403b this is labeled as a qualified retirement plan so Think of this as a long-term account. Like when you put money into this account, you can't even touch it before 59 and a half without a 10% penalty on it. Now, the nice things about these 403Bs are they're usually very easy to set up, right? Your employer helps you set it up. You deduct some from your pay stub, usually a menu of investment options. So it's not overly complicated. Um, again, I know physicians love asset protection. You get ERISA protection here. So from an asset protection perspective, Really, you want to keep as many assets as you can in qualified plans because it doesn't matter what state you live in, you're going to get really good asset protection there where like IRAs, Roth IRAs, it, it can vary by state. Most people don't realize that. Um, but start with your 403B. You know, while you're in training, I would say if there's a match, I noted this a little bit earlier, try to at least get the free match. You're, you're going to have options for pre-tax or Roth. Again, it's going to take us two months to build a financial plan, but I try to summarize it like this. If you're going for PSLF, pre-tax can make a lot of sense because remember, every, every dollar you save pre-tax, it lowers your adjusted gross income. 
how do they calculate your student loan payment? Because it, from your, your adjusted gross income. So not only are you saving for retirement, you're also lowering your adjusted gross income, which also then lowers your student loan payment. If for whatever reason you don't have student loans, or maybe you're going to go for more aggressive payoff, maybe a Roth would make sense here. And if you're not familiar with the term Roth, Roth is something where you're going to put in after-tax dollars. So Uncle Sam already took his, his cut here. You're going to invest it while it's inside of the Roth 403B or even a Roth IRA here, it grows tax deferred, which just means that you're not getting you know, any 1099s throughout the year. While it's in there and you're not interrupting it, you know, you're, you're tax-free inside of there. And then when you go to pull the money out, completely tax-free, assuming it's qualified withdrawals. Again, assume that you've had the account open for five years and you're pulling it out of retirement. That's essentially your qualified uh, withdrawal there to keep it simple. Um, but that's the beauty of the Roth. And this is also where you know, we'll get to the Roth IRA next. But your plan may offer pre-tax. They may offer a Roth. Roth 403Bs weren't all that common a few years ago. They're pretty common today. Um, so that's your qualified plan. That's probably most people's starting spot. If you don't have that at your, um, at your program or they don't offer a match, you probably can skip that maybe and then look towards a Roth um, IRA. Now, if they do offer that uh, and you're going pre-tax, again, I would look that way if you're going for, for PSLF. Uh, the Roth IRA, very popular, functions the same way as what I just described that Roth 403B. The difference here is you, you get limited to how much you can put into it. So in the year 2023, the current limit, um, assuming that you're under the age of, of 50, is uh, 6,500. Now, while you're in training, more than likely, your income is low enough that you can still go directly to a Roth IRA. You don't have to overcomplicate it yet with the backdoor Roth. Now, one thing to keep in mind, if you are married and doing married filing separately, which is very common in the student loan space, that number drops the whole way down to 10,000. So pretty much you have to do a backdoor Roth IRA, even in that example. And one thing to also keep in mind, I feel like saying one thing more than one time, uh, one more thing <laughs> to keep in mind is you can't have any other any IRA balances. So you don't want to have an, a traditional IRA. You don't want to have something called a SEP IRA, which is more common if you had 1099 income, and you don't want to have a simple IRA. If you have any of those balances and you start to do backdoor Roth IRAs, you're going to create this messy thing called pro rata. So just do a little Google search, backdoor Roth IRA, you know, type in pro rata if you're worried about that. But the easiest way to think of it is you just don't want to have any IRA balance, SEP IRA, or simple IRA on 1231 of that year, or else it's going to introduce this thing called pro rata, which is a pretty common error that we see quite a bit. Um, and, and the term backdoor Roth, you can't go to Vanguard.com and say, I want to open up a backdoor Roth IRA. There's no such account as a backdoor Roth. It's just more or less the process of how you get money in there. So if your income is over those limits, you have this extra step now. So you got to put, let's say you're going to max it out at 6,500. You got to put the 6,500 into your IRA first. So again, traditional IRA, and then you're going to convert it to your Roth. That little move is the backdoor part. Mm, so once okay. it gets into that Roth, then get it invested. Um, the amount of times we've actually met with people where they did it perfectly, but the one thing they forgot was to invest. They assumed like once it got into the Roth, oh, I'm done. Make sure you actually invest it though, because it's going to come over in cash. So that little move is your backdoor Roth. Um, and because you made a non-deductible contribution, again, your income was too high, it's really a tax neutral event. So you put 6,500 into the IRA, convert it over to your Roth. Once it's in there, get it invested. But because you use after-tax dollars, it's a tax neutral event. Now, you know, why it's in cash, you might have like two or three dollars of interest that builds up. You do owe taxes on the two or three dollars, 
Um, I think you'll make it through that okay. But that's that's the process of the backdoor Roth. So so the Roth IRA, just kind of doing a little bit of an overview. So with that, you know, there's limits. These are something that you put money into this account with after tax dollars. There's a limit to 6,500 yearly. And then there's also, I guess, an income limit. And once you have money in that account, it does generate some interest over time. But you can people also use those accounts to in they can invest that money. Is that correct? Yeah. So what happens is when you put the money initially into the IRA window, what will happen is like Fidelity's and Vanguard usually want the cash to settle. And it might be two or three days. So it will probably accumulate a little bit of interest while it sat there in cash. But I'm literally talking like a dollar or two. Oh, okay. And then when you convert it to the Roth. That is where once it gets over to the Roth, that's when you want to invest it into you know, your traditional stocks and bonds and, and whatever you're going to build into your portfolio. So at the end of the year, you're going to get a 1099 and it's going to say 6,500 and I'm going to make up $2. So the 6,500 tax neutral then, the $2 of, of interest there, that would be taxable. So that's what I mean by there, there could be a little bit of residual in there. But for the most part, it, it's usually a, going to be a very moot point. Um, and, and just, to, I had to grab my cheat sheet. Um, now, again, these are 2023 numbers, but these are probably just going to be helpful. If you were single and your income is below 138,000, so this is why I say most physicians in training, right? Under 138, you can go directly to a Roth. Now, if you're done married, filing jointly, that number is up to 218,000. So if your income is below 218 as a household, as a household, um, you can still go directly to a Roth. If you are doing married filing separately, though, that number plummets down to 10,000. Now, there's technically a phase out that goes up a little bit higher, but I always tell our physicians, if you get anywhere near those numbers, just add in the extra backdoor step. But at least add some context there um, to actually show you what those income limits are, which is where, again, usually if you're single and in training, you're likely going to be able to go directly to a Roth. Now, if you're married, you know, we'll have a, a lot of clients that come to us where they're still in training, but their spouse is now attending right now. You're probably getting pretty close to that married filing joint issue where you're going to be above that. So those are the income limits to keep in mind on, can I go directly to the Roth or do I have to add in this extra step to make it a backdoor Roth IRA? And overall big picture of these accounts. So like we talked about the 403B, uh, which is what you pay with before tax dollars, which uh, which your employer kind of helps set up. Sometimes you may get a free match from the employer. And the purpose of this account is to continue to put money in there, free money from the employer, hopefully. And then by the time you hit 60 years old or whatever, there's a good amount of money in that account that you can take out when you are X amount of year, years old. So it's pretty much like a, I don't know if want to necessarily say if it's a savings account, uh, but it's almost like a savings account kind of, and it's and it's generating interest this time, this entire time. Is that correct? Is that like a good overview statement? Yeah. And, and keep in mind you're invested. So while I don't disagree with the comment of a savings account, it's likely going to have a lot more volatility than a savings account, right? A savings account doesn't really go down, right. but in your 403B, you're going to have a list of investment options and, you know, you could be all stocks. You could be some stocks and bonds, whatever allocation you would choose, you're going to have a volatility there. And ideally, when you go to retire, then that number is much higher, one from contribution, but hopefully also from market growth. And remember, anything you do pre-tax, it's you still have to pay Uncle Sam. So 
you're cranking away to the, the 403B every year. And likely we want you to do pre-tax because you're, you're probably in a pretty high tax bracket as is. And we know what tax rates are today. We just don't know what they are tomorrow. But I always use the example, if you have a million dollars saved up and in retirement, your tax rate is still 30%, you don't really have a million dollars. You technically have 700,000 right. where the Roth is going to be the exact opposite, which is why we try to get some Roth assets going. We can't, again, we're kind of limited what the IRS allows. It's currently at 6,500. But if that account's at a million dollars, you truly have a million dollars. It's fully been taxed. It's all yours. So in a perfect world, we're trying to build up these different buckets, some pre-tax, some after-tax. And there's another account that we didn't get into too much where we just label as really a taxable account where the only thing we're worried about there is capital gains. It doesn't really mess with your ordinary income unless you get into a short-term um, gain. But if you have these three buckets and you retire, we then have this opportunity to say, heck, I don't know what the tax rates are going to be next year. I sure as heck don't know what they're going to be when we all go to retire. But if we have good pre-tax assets, we have good Roth assets, and we have some, some taxable assets, we have different buckets to go from. So whatever the IRS, whatever the tax code is presenting to us at that time, we can build a plan around these assets that you've accumulated you know, throughout your, your working career. Okay. So these are more, these are like, uh, these are investment accounts and you can use those funds to in, invest in stocks or bonds or whatever else it may be. Perfect. Yep. Okay. Okay. So that's, that's one aspect of it. And again, while you're younger or you're making below the X amount of money that you stated not too long ago, you can invest and especially in these, in these Roth accounts, these Roth IRA accounts, for example, um, you can do that younger and you can, you know, with a limit, pretty much what you said a little bit earlier. Yep. yep. Perfect. And so you touched about budgeting. We touched, talked a little bit earlier that Disability insurance is another one of the things that we need to get in order. Uh, the investments in these different um, accounts is another thing. Uh, what about life insurance? Is that something? Is that something we need? You know, we always hear us. You know, they always kind of say, "Oh, what about you know? We can we can sell you the life insurance too. We can sell you this, that, and that." Is that something we need now, or is that like okay? It, it's situational. If you have five kids, and you probably have it versus if you're young and single, you don't necessarily need to buy a a life insurance plan as if as an intern. Yeah, uh, definitely situational. Um, if it has permanent life insurance in it, you would likely be sold something. Um, I usually describe it as this: if someone relies on your income, you need life insurance. You know, whether that is your spouse, whether that's your kids, maybe you provide a ton of support to your parents. You know, we work with a lot of physicians that are over here on visa or they're over here from India or Africa, and they still send a lot of money back home. So even if they're not married with kids yet, they're providing a lot of financial support back home. So someone is relying on their income. You know, the Finance 101 textbook might not label it that way, but, you know, 100% someone is relying on their income. So in that example, there is a need for life insurance. If someone co-signed on your loans, this one is missed all the time. If someone co-signed on your loans, you likely need life insurance because if you pass away, they will come after that person to pay the bill. This is why we say co-sign very, very sparingly, whether it's you or even your parents, just be cautious there because if no one co-signed on it and you were to pass away, they're not going to come after anybody, especially on federal loans. Now, some private employer or private student loan providers might still do that. They actually have in their walls that are in their, their contact that says, hey, we'll come after your estate. But if there's nothing in the estate, they can't get anything anyway. Right. Um and even if you're, if no one's relying on your income, um, no one co-signed on your loans, but you're young and healthy, could I still make a case 
that you might want to go get, you know, a million dollars of term life insurance because you're young and healthy just to lock in your insurability. Sure, I, I can make that case. We, we usually don't push that too much um, unless they're sitting there and like, listen, I'm getting married next week. As soon as we get married, we're starting family planning. Like we know that, hey, life's going to really fire up here in the next few years. Sure, maybe in that example, even though no one is reliant just yet, we still want to lock in some some term life insurance. Because remember, term life insurance is, is pretty low cost. And you know, when we talk to different resident programs and fellowships, you know, we're always noting like when I say three to five million dollars, it should not make you fall out of your chair. Just take your attending pay, multiply that by 10 or 15, or you can make a case to, to multiply it by 20. And that didn't even include like, hey. You know, I got to pay off the mortgage. You know, I have three kids that all want to go to Harvard. Uh, my spouse likes to find her things in life. Like we didn't even get complicated <laughs> yet. We just, we kept yeah. it very simple and said, replace your salary. You, know, you guys put all this time and energy into your careers. And, and I hope it's never cut short from a premature death event. But at the same time, like you have a chance to at least ensure some of that number. So if someone relies on your income, slam dunk, you need it. If someone co-signed on your loans and they would be in a tough spot if something happened. Like if you're like, hey, you know, my, my parents are pretty well off. My student loan balance is 100 grand. Like I don't want them to pay that, but if they had to, they'd be okay. You might have to have a deeper conversation there. Maybe you don't know to need it. Maybe you do. And then, like I said, even if you are young and healthy, you could still make a case to lock in your insurability uh, and get some some life insurance in place. But the key here, main takeaway. Term life insurance. If you take one thing away from our chat today, just don't come away with permanent life insurance. Awesome. Well, well Chad, this has been great uh, speaking with you and, and covering all these different aspects of the things that we at least need to start to think about to have in order when we're starting to look at the financial side of things. Um, any last things or anything else that you can think of as far as you know, broad categories that physicians should have at least start to think about when they're starting to look at the financial side of things before we wrap up here? You know, I, I think not neglecting that emergency fund, you know, even while you're in training, oh, yeah. you know, if you can put a couple hundred bucks away uh, and build up some cash, it just provides so much flexibility. You know, when you finish up your training, you know, there's always this period of time that we call the gap funds. Like you're going to finish your training, your paycheck is going to stop. But when does your big kid paycheck start? Right? When do you start as a penny? It's not uncommon for, you know, a lot of our physicians to take a few months off because they want to travel, just take a deep breath for once. You know, keep in mind, you're going to have those moments. You're likely going to relocate somewhere. You know, movers aren't cheap. You might need a home um, and you want to put a down payment on. You, you do have something in your back pocket called a physician mortgage loan. Um, so you might not have to put much down. You might not have to put anything down. But I think especially earlier in your career, I can make a bigger case for this, but continue to build up something. You don't have to set any world records here. If you have a couple thousand, if you have a couple hundred, start small, try to add to it over time. Um, but I still think, you know, just keeping it very simple with the foundation of emergency fund, it, it's just going to give you options. Cash is never a bad thing. So, um, you know, I, I'd add that to the list of something to put there high uh, to continue to build that up or at least start to build that up. Awesome. Well, well, Chad, this has been, again, great speaking with you. Uh, learned a lot already uh, just about kind of the financial side of things. Now, for those that are listening that want to learn a little bit more about you or follow you on social media or anything, find your website, how can they kind of reach you and, and, and see what you have going on? Yeah, so our, our, our website's kind of like the hub of everything. So just it's wealthkill.com. Um, I say I'm not an old financial advisor. I would still label myself as pretty young, but getting much better into even producing more content through 
uh, our LinkedIn channel where we're going to put some videos out there. Pretty active on Twitter. I enjoy Twitter. Uh, or as my mom says, the bluebird. Um, <laughs> even putting stuff on YouTube. We do a lot of longer form videos on YouTube. So if you get to our website, most of the socials are listed down there below. So I think that's probably the best way uh, to follow along. And, and we do a, a weekly email as well. We call it the Wealth Kill Weekly where... Um, you know, we don't try to sell anything. It's more or less, if we can help a million physicians with free information, we're completely okay with that. Um, so whether it's the YouTube channel, whether it's, the, you know, the different socials, whether it's our, our Wealth Kill Weekly, um, those are good places to follow along. And, and we try to keep a lot of that updated, you know, pretty good rate as well. Awesome. Well, Chad, it's been a uh, pleasure having you on. And and uh, and for those who are listening, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Hit the subscribe button. And we hope that you all got a, got a lot out of it. Thanks again, Thanks. Chad, for being a guest. Thanks, Wendell. This is awesome, man. I appreciate it. We hope you all enjoyed that. Again, the first of our finance series. Uh, let us know how much you like it. Let us know things that you like to hear covered, different topics you like to hear covered. If you have somebody in particular you want me to speak to, let us know. Do you want us to speak with Robert Kiyosaki? We'll try to make it happen. Whoever you want, let us know. And we hope that this information is going to be helpful for you all and that everybody finds some value in the future. And uh, so without further ado, we'll see you all next week. Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, locum tenants should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if locum tenants is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from locums physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com.